Welcome back to the show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're really leaning into this morning show thing. <laughs> I don't know why it's in my head. I don't even. I don't even know if I've actually even listened to a morning show. I think my 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 experience with morning shows is probably from seeing them represented on television and movies. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't think I've actually listened to them. It's weird because I'm up pretty early these days, uh, but I don't think I've actually listened to a morning show in God over a decade. Yeah, I probably haven't listened to the radio in over a decade, so awful to say. Awful to say. But we got a lot of stuff that little random shit that I found that like follow up on stuff we talked about a long time ago that we can go through at some point in this episode. Some more complaining about technology. (laughs) Jeez, that's surprising. Shocking for me. Shocking. Absolutely shocking. Mm. I finished. Oh, uh, well, we'll talk about that later. But I will tell you, I finished reading um, Surveillance Capitalism, the Shoshana Zuboff book. Man, you've been working on that book for months. I know. I put it aside for like a month and a half just because it was too much for me. It it was just, and it doesn't get better, obviously. (laughs) I mean, the book gets better, but the prognosis does not get better. Yeah, I suppose that's got to be a, I mean, a, reading a book like that's got to be a jarring experience. I mean, I'm only maybe, what, maybe a chapter in. I had it on audiobook for a long time, but I haven't really, I haven't really listened to it at all because I've been catching up on other reading, but it seems just in the small bit that I read like a month ago, it's already terrifying. So I can't even imagine how many, how many more levels of, of paranoid you must be given how far into it you are. Yeah, especially when it starts getting into Facebook and all the actually the stuff that shocked me the most is actually a very small part of the book, but it's the stuff about I think we talked about it when we talked about the book before, but the stuff about like our phone services and our cable um companies and stuff like that, all the stuff that they're taking from us data wise, because that one scares me the most because I can do what I did and say, you know what, screw you, Google, I'm not using any of your stuff anymore. But sure. What do you do when you when you when it's coming from your phone company and you're like, well, is this phone company better? No. Is this one better? No. They're all doing it. Um, so I could either not have a phone or have to pretend that that's not happening. Or not have internet at home. You know, like all these things. It's it's a very those trade-offs are the scariest to me. Because Google is not integral to your life, regardless of what people think. Well, the tough part for me is that, you know, considering who I work with, like there's political groups and there's um, companies that that share docs with me, like even the the startup that we were talking about, um, I can't not use Google Docs um, unless I force the entire company to change. And so that's, that's unfortunately, I, at least for now, I have, to, I have to stay in that ecosystem. If people only knew, I mean, if I was a startup... The last thing I would use is Google products because um, now they have data on your company. And you can tell me they're not going to use that if they think that you're, you're, if you're creating something that's going to compete with something uh, that they make. You didn't tell me they're not going to use the data that they have against you. Come on now. What's to stop them? 
Well, the tough part too is that, you know, it, it's so invasive, right? Like the, the company that I'm working with, for example, I mean, it's a true startup um, in every sense of the word. And so from that perspective, you know, if they want a comprehensive office suite that isn't going to cost them a ton of money, there isn't very much in the way of other options. I mean, even even the, the members of the company itself know how invasive and crappy it is to have everything living on a, a Google Cloud somewhere, but there's not really a, a, a useful alternative that, that that is free, you know? Well, I'm not... The thing about it that I don't... I'm not positive that I believe is all these companies claim for a need for a comprehensive office suite. Most of them do not need that. In fact, the comprehensive office suite, put in quotation marks, usually gets in the way of productivity. You know, like, like for example, you know, like we, we have Slack. You and I and, and Tom, we use Slack. Latte does not use Slack. Um, we use Slack and... We use it very minimally, but I know there are a lot of companies that use it very, very extensively, and to the point where there's tons and tons of articles online written about how Slack gets in the way of people doing their work, <laughs> or you know the pervasive. We've talked about how much about email gets in the way of things before. I, I, just, I think that there's this. You know, obviously, I don't know every company, and I'm, I'm making a blanket statement here, but I think most people think they need stuff that they don't need because we've been convinced by the dispossession cycle of people like Google that and Microsoft, that these are things that we do need, when in fact we don't. Well, I think there's the other side of that too. Um, you know, we, we talk about this all the time. It's not about the tools themselves because, you know, an office suite is just an office suite or, um, you know, Slack, for example, is just a communication tool. It's, it's how you end up using it. Um, and I think, for example, um, because of digital minimalism and what I've been doing with just my, my phone stuff and my social media stuff, um, I think going into Slack, I, I use it much more smartly than I would have if I hadn't gone through that purging. Right. Um, and and you know even with how I use my email now, I, I still literally stick to the rule of I only check my email three times a day, you know, um, and I'm I'm slowly going to transition to two times a day, and because of that, like with Slack for example, I don't have my notifications turned all the time, or turned on all the time. Um, it's only when I'm sitting in front of my computer and I'm working on very specific things that I know I can get distracted from without losing my spot. Like if I'm just doing research, for example, and it's okay for me to to bounce in and out of that then I will turn notifications on. But most of the time, um, and almost exclusively on my mobile device, I always have notifications off. Yeah, see, because my only Slack is with you and Tom. And since I'm usually the one that's putting stuff on there, I have my notifications for that turned on. But <laughs> what do I get? Like one every two weeks? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's the, 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 the problem is I'm on four different Slack channels. Um, mm -hmm. A couple of which, like with the political one, for example, there's like 27 people on that thing. Oh, how um, about that? And, and individual groups that I have to work with on a fairly regular basis. And they all know that I only check it at certain times too as well. And if they need me, then they can call me. But it's literally... I mean, the moment I turn my Slack on, I'm, I'm filtering through between 20 to 30 messages every six or seven hours. And it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's one of those things too, like a lot of the people who are using Slack um, in that particular um, sphere of influence, um, they're younger people. And so because of that, they're used to the, the in and out of social media and the, con the consistency of that. So for me, at least, it's, it's, trying to find a mid-ground that makes sense, um, that doesn't alienate them or make them feel like I'm out of touch. But by that same token, I don't want to feel like I'm constantly tethered to it as well. Um, 
So it's 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 funny though because the the different Slack channels that I'm a part of, uh, each one each workspace that I'm in has a very different age demographic, and so because of that, the level of frequency of use is very different from group to group. Yeah, same thing. I think that that's a perfect example. Like when you said how many notifications there are, you get is a perfect example of over communication. And I think that's one of the the worst symptoms, even beyond the the privacy and all of this stuff. One of the worst symptoms of, of the of the modern era of applications and programs and all of this is the belief that we need to be in contact all of the time about every little thing. And it, it's, it's really <laughs> convinced us that we need it more than we do. I mean, for decades, dec- beyond decades, centuries, uh, people have communicated without instant communication. And until a couple decades ago, you had to either be face-to-face or send a letter. Or call on the phone, you know what I mean? Like, and those companies did fine. Um, government governments were run for centuries. <laughs> I'm I'm so much happier with the way I use communication now. Like, I still I'm I'm on do not disturb mode on my phone pretty much every waking minute of my life, um, and so my my phone time has been reduced to ten percent of what it was two months ago. Um, and even, even then I feel like I'm on my phone too much and I'm going to continually try and try to, um, further chop down. Um, but a lot of the, the difficulty of that is not just chopping down my own personal usage, but training the people that I work with and, and communicate with regularly, um, how I communicate and how I use those mediums in order to, to, to still get the messages that I need across, but to understand that pretty much everything isn't a garbage fire. Like not every, not everything requires a fire extinguisher right away. And most things I, I'd say probably close to 80 to 90% of the things that I deal with on a daily basis do not require an urgent action. Yeah, things rarely do. In fact, sometimes they benefit from not having an, an urgent reaction. Sometimes sure. if you let something stew, it solves itself. Um, that's kind of what I say about the news. Most of the stuff that the news gets you upset about disappears in a day. Either it doesn't happen or it turns out to be something different. Um, just And to follow up, when we talked about this before... Remember, I had said I had got my screen time down very low. Well, I have kept that up. On my phone, my screen time today, 44 minutes, which is 23 minutes above average. So that means I've been using approximately 22 minutes a day. So hmm. phone is almost a, a useless object to me now. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I'm, I'm still I'm shocked at how you pull off 10 minutes. It's, I but, mean, but of course, your, your life and my life are really different in, when it comes to how, how many different pies I'm, I've got fingers in um, at this point. So, I mean, I, I guess if I were to slim it down to each particular thing, it's between 10 to 15 minutes per thing. But then, you know, there's five different things I'm working on. So I'm still on the phone about maybe an hour to an hour and a half every day. Well, I've just trained myself to... When, I, when I'm doing something that requires typing, I'm at the desk. I'm at the computer. I don't do it on my phone anymore. I don't do any of that shit. If I'm reading something or I'm watching... uh, Well, not really watching much videos, but listening to a podcast, usually it's through my iPad. I'll just prop up my iPad and, you know, there it is. Play the podcast. And I'll have it, you know, streaming to to my HomePod or whatever. But the phone, I mean, the main use of the phone is there's a... An app for tracking when I take my pills twice a day, <laughs> for <laughs> connecting um, stuff to my phone. Uh, I mean, to my watch. Sorry, it is my phone. 
And what's the one other thing? There's like one other thing that I use it for. I can't even remember. So that tells you a lot. And that's it. I mean, I don't really... I look... Oh, that's the, the Robo Killer. Did I tell you about Robo Killer? That voicemail thing? No. Oh. No, I did not. Do you, do you get a lot of spam calls on your phone? Oh, yeah. At least seven or eight a day. If not more than that. There are times, especially during the pe- the political period, I get 20 to 25 a day. Oh, get the Robo Killer app. It's like $30 a year. It is the best for getting rid of that stuff that I've ever used. I was using malware mm-hmm. bytes before and I was still getting five to six a day. Now I get one every four or five days. And so basically, I'd, I don't know a lot about the logistics on the back end, but when you sign up, it asks you for your phone number. And I think what it's doing is it's forwarding your phone number through their servers before it goes to your phone. So they have a list of... Let me look at the in the app right now. This is a very highly rated app as well. Um, so it's it's not like some fly-by-night company. It's been reviewed by some of the top magazines and newspapers in the world and uh, tech sites and so forth. So far, they have a list of 1,223,412 spam phone numbers that they will automatically oh, block geez. before. So when you when somebody calls or a machine calls... If they, the only way that's going to get to the next step is if it's not one of those 1,223,412 numbers. That is astounding. Then after that, <laughs> this is the best part. Um, if they get to your voicemail, because it makes them go through like prompts and stuff to get to your voicemail after it goes through that process. If they make it through that gauntlet, then it faces, it, it puts them. Um, on with a voicemail that wastes their time. Um, yes. <laughs> so, let me see. I don't know if you'll be able to hear it well. We'll try this. Um, let's see. Where'd it go? Um, this one. Let's try this one. See if you can hear it. Is that plain? No, it's not plain. Hold on. I got to figure out how to play this. But yeah, it's it's pretty funny. I mean, there are... Hundreds of different ones. Oh, here we go. Did you, did you, you know, one second, I'm a little, I'm just a little shook up. I actually had like an alien encounter this morning. <laughs> I wish I would have been prepared. Like I would have. Been <laughs> so that one's one of the funnier ones, but there's some that will literally just waste their time. And it'll hold on, hold on. I'm going through a tunnel right now. Um, can you hear me? This Bluetooth device is it's not working and it just keeps talking to them and talking to them. Um, and <laughs> the best part, it records them for you. So you can listen to it afterwards. And if it's really good, you can submit it and you know, like to their their board or whatever for other people to listen to and laugh. Um, but the main thing is it is highly, highly effective. So I recommend it and it also it adds something to your text messages too. So if you get a spam text message, underneath the spam text message, there's a little blue link that says report. And all you hit is report and then done. And now that number is reported as a spam too. Fantastic. Huh, that's really cool. Yeah, that's amazing. I definitely have to get that. Yeah. Even though they just passed that law that's supposed to stop some spamming, I don't think that it's going to stop as much as they think it is. Because most of these are overseas, so... Huh. Do you know do you know the company that provides it? Who makes RoboKiller? Yeah. 
Mm, I can look in the app store. Please wait. Stand by. Please stand by. Connecting. Was that was that was that AOL uh, online? Uh, America online. Connecting. No, that was. Dude, I don't even remember. You're going way back there. Teltech Systems, whoever that is. So that's one app I would recommend. Now I would like to give you a list of. This works really well into what I had to tell you. This I want to give you a list of apps that if they're on your phone, you should delete them right now. Um. So this is something I'm getting from MacRumors.com. Um, apps are using background app refresh to send data to tracking companies. So app background app. Um, sorry for such a tech heavy beginning of the show, guys, but we'll move through this. Um, background app refresh for those who don't know is supposed to you know like if you have um, like news, Apple News, right? When you open the Apple News app you don't want it to load all the content then. You want it to have most of that stuff loaded so that when you open it, you can just work. Um, weather app. You know, you don't want to wait for it to talk to the weather thing. You just want the, the weather continually going to your weather app. Those are Apple stock apps. You don't have to worry about those. But apps like that. Um, so these apps are using that. And instead of using that to go to the servers where they're supposed to get any information, they're taking data from your phone, like your location data, um, your identification number, your phone number, probably your name, um, and sending it to trackers, for example. Oh, man. To people like Google and Facebook. So you could have no Google and no Facebook on your phone and they could still be collecting stuff from you because they have it through these other companies. Um, I'm just going to read a tiny, tiny bit of this. Um, apps that were found passing data along included Microsoft OneDrive, Mint, by the way, pay attention. These are all big companies. These are not small like apps that you'd think, I can't trust them. Microsoft OneNote, Mint, Nike, Spotify, Whoa. The Weather Channel, DoorDash, Yelp, Citizen, and even the Washington Post's own iOS app. Citizen shared personally identif- identifiable information that violated its own privacy policies. And the tracker Jeez. was later removed. Yelp was sending data every five minutes. Hmm. Now, this the guy who found this, uh, the guy who found it said he, when he was going, says he ran into, I don't know what that means, how much, where he was running into these things, but he ran into 5,400 trackers, mostly found within apps. Um, and those trackers would have sent 1.5 gigabytes of data over the course of one month. So not only that, you're paying for them to send the data that they're stealing from you. Jeez. Mm. Awful. Shame on you, Spotify. Is there... I mean, if you turn location services off, does that help at all? Mm, No, I don't think so. Because it's not a location services thing. It is a background... You'd have to turn off background app refresh. Um, But then the moment you you use the app, it would do it anyways. Mm. So when you you open the app, it's still going to pull all that data and send it off. Time for everybody to switch to Apple Music. (laughs) Spotify. Man. Spotify. That's the one, you know, like if you look at the comments on this thing, that's the one that pisses most people off is Spotify. And I think it's because people wanted to believe in Spotify and to trust that they were a good company. You know, like they wanted to set Apple up as the bad guy and Spotify is the good guy. Um, No. Opposite. DoorDash also has trackers from Facebook and Google ad services, which means that Facebook... 
that which means Facebook and DoorDash are notified when I think they mean Facebook and Google are notified mm-hmm. when you're using DoorDash services. So Google and Facebook know what you're eating and when you're having it delivered. How about that? Uh, that's pretty useful, actually. Mm-hmm. No, useful, useful for them, not useful for us, obviously. Of course. So scary, scary shit. Um, just this is the ones going back to Shoshana Zuboff. This is what she refers to in the book for those who weren't around for that episode as the cycle of dispossession. Companies convince you that your data does not belong to you and that there's nothing you can do about it. And you just get used to it. Remember the conversation we had yesterday? Even even in that conversation, and we, I, I, I'd like to think that we're a little more forward-thinking than, than most when it comes to this kind of stuff just because of how much we pay attention to it. But, but even Tom said, oh, they have it anyway. Yeah, you know what I mean? He's been convinced by the cycle of dispossession. Although it, him, when he says it, it's a little bit snarkier than everybody else oh, because yeah, he knows sure. they don't have his shit because he doesn't use most of it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. So it's for him, I don't think they probably have anything on him except from Instagram. And considering yeah, what he Tom's, posts on Instagram... Tom's pretty, yeah, Tom's pretty unplugged in general. So that makes sense. Yeah, so we should all look up to him for that. <laughs> I definitely uh, do. I don't know. That's that's a discipline that I don't have yet. Like I can't complain. And part of it too is I keep giving. Well, I yeah, because I mean, part of it for me is that my excuse to myself is that I have all this business stuff that I need to do, and it's true to a point. But I definitely feel like it gives me um, more license to dive into these things when I really shouldn't be diving as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's a certain um, like for example, there's something that they call in. I believe it's, it could be sociology and not psychology, but I'm going to say psychology called moral licensing. And moral licensing is like, I voted for Obama, so it's okay if I make this black joke. Oh. You know, like I did, I did this thing, therefore I'm not a bad person, right? And I think that same type of thinking can be applied to these things where it's like, I use this for work, so it's okay if every once in a while I use it for myself. It's a, it's a, mm. I wouldn't, it's not moral licensing, but maybe we'll call it hab, habitual licensing or addictive licensing, maybe is a better way to say it. That we, we excuse our addictions because they're attached to something that's important. Like I use Instagram for my brand. I have to be on there in order to build my brand. That's yeah, I, I definitely do that. <laughs> You're not the only one. Every, I hate to tell you, like, 90% of the people out there <laughs> think they're building a brand. You know, I'm not saying that you're not. I'm just saying, so that's something that everybody thinks in some way. Because it's sure. like, oh, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm building my brand. I wish I, had, I wish I had clipped it. I ran across an article that I chose not to read, but I wish I had read it. But um, it said uh, something along the lines, the title was something along the lines of, it's, it's too late to build your own personal brand anymore. Like they were saying, don't use your name as your brand anymore. Mm. I didn't read it, so I can't really talk about it. But I was like, oh, tide's turning on that too. Well, I'm, I think I'm burping right now, but I'm not sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's got a weird bubble <laughs> in my throat. Um, okay, one other one other thing, and then we'll get out of this technology thing, unless you want to talk about it more. Um, when we talked about Shoshana Zuboff and we talked about the dispossession cycle, one of the examples I gave was Google Glass, and I said that. Uh, the example of the way that they would pull something out and then bring it back in a different form to habituate you to it. 
said, for example, if you took Google Glass, which was supposed to be for private individuals, and they said, we're going to release it for, you know, uses for nurses and for, um, you know, people who work with their hands that can't, that need information, but can't pull out their phone. And so then we'll make a, we'll make a version of Google Glass for those people. And then those people will get used to using it at work. And then they'd start to ask, hmm, why does this thing that I was scared of five years ago, why can't I get that for myself and I can only use it at work? Well, she was right. Google launches new $999 glass AR headset for enterprise customers. Oh, man. Also for Mac rumors. I'm going to say, though, that that's not even kind of surprising. Yeah, and what's what's funny is they they said, oh, they they'd taken the reason they took off was time to redesign it, and yes, it does look different. But you know what it looks like? It looks like a pair of Wayfarers. You know what mm. Wayfarers are, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it looks like a pair of Buddy Holly glasses. Like you didn't design that. That glass style, that style of sunglasses and glasses has been around since like nineteen forty something. Ah, uh, so. Anyways, it's time. Can we all just take a moment and breathe in and fuck you, Google. And in, <laughs> fuck you, Google. Oh, let's throw an extra one in. Fuck you, Spotify. <laughs> you all feel I'm better really, now? I'm, oh, man, I'm really mad about the Spotify thing. That's really annoying. Yeah, well, you, this is the thing about it. I thought about this. Spotify's business model sucks. So they got to make money however they can. So taking your data and selling your data, that's how they're being able to pay, underpay all the artists that they, that they need to pay. See, sure. Apple, can, Apple can supplement that payment you know, like through other parts of their, their business. Like, well, we're making a ton of money off of the computer. So we can put that into Apple Music to make sure Apple Music keeps working because that's a service we want our user base to have. Sure. Spotify doesn't have that. That's why they're trying to get into podcasting because they don't have to pay anybody for their podcasts. Yeah, it's all about free content, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I mean, you can't blame them, but at the same time, fuck you for taking my data. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't blame them, but you kind of can. I mean, there are ways to do that that are... Well, I don't know if there's ways to do it that are less insidious. I feel like by nature, it's just insidious. I, well, I mean, I, I'll, I'll take a libertarian stance on this. If your business model isn't good enough to keep your company going... You shouldn't be in business. Mm, sure. The end. I mean, it, <laughs> why should I suffer because you chose a bad business plan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to. Ah, all right. Anything you would like to talk about that doesn't have to do with tech? Let's let's uh, let's diversify here. Let's diversify our portfolio. Not really. I'm trying to think of. I had some interesting stuff to talk to you about. Um, but now I, I, I hate starting a sentence that way because then it, it forces it to be interesting. Um, <laughs> how do I, I have put this? If you, if you need, so don't feel you well, you're I, on the spot. Well, at one point or another, I wanted to talk about the perils of long-term memory, um, mm-hmm. and and how my long-term memory causes me to hiccup my way through my experiences in life. Um, but I'm not sure how to intelligently speak about that. <laughs> yeah. how, about I, how about I ask you questions and then you can talk it out? Yeah, that so, might be better. When you say hiccup, what do you mean by hiccup? Explain the, explain uh, the phenomena. So I have aftershocks. Um, 
so my short-term memory is okay. You know, I, I remember things decently on a day-to-day basis, but my long-term memory is pretty phenomenal. Um, and I think a lot of that is because of, you know, the things I do in life. Like I'm a writer, I'm a photographer. So by nature, I'm an archivist um, or an arch- I don't even know if that's a real word. Archivist. Um, but I'm an, an, I'm an archivist. I, I like the way that sounds better. Um, so it feels like the experiences I have in life, I relive, but I relive them much later than most people do. Um, like when it comes to a bad experience or when it comes to the end of a relationship or something like that, for example, I feel like I have aftershocks um, in the sense that I will remember things from months ago or years ago at random times. Um, and that makes it so that I have emotionally jarring moments that are unexpected throughout the course of my day. And I've been having a few of those lately and it's been, it's been troubling. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong though. I know everybody has that kind of experience, but my long-term memory happens to be really good. Um, so the intricate detail by which I remember these experiences is very jarring. And so in the moments in which I have the the rush of memory um, or the deja vu, which is what it kind of feels like, um, I experience not just a momentary snap of time, but I, I fully experience a length of time. Um, and that's really, really difficult. Hmm, that's so interesting because um, one of the, one of the things that I continually think about is the doing these long walks and how that's been changing things for me. And I think that as happens on this show often, we both have a similar experience coming from different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't necessarily. I would almost actually say that I'm the I'm the near opposite of what you're saying. Um, mm. And not not that I don't experience that, but in that it's never jarring for me. It's always pleasant. Um, and it's these like dreamy fragments that come back while I'm walking. You know, we've talked about that a little bit before where I see something and it sparks something else. But now as that's been going on, those um, sometimes they connect to memories. Um, so, and I've always been kind of a person that I wouldn't say I don't have good long-term memory because in general, both of my memory, short-term and long-term are both pretty good. Um, But I just don't think about the long past very often. Um, It it just literally never pops up. Maybe because I'm always um, funneling or not funneling, tunneling, you know, like always digging and doing something else into the future. Um, So the back vision doesn't happen. So when these little things happen, I'm like, oh, oh, what's that? What's that? Why am I thinking about that? Or I'll have um, an image and go, what is that from? Why is that image so strong for me? What is that from? Um, mm. But uh, when you when you say that they're emotionally jarring, like, yeah, I mean, it almost sounds like you're saying you're, you're re-traumatizing yourself. Yeah, I would say that's a pretty accurate depiction. Um, because I f- feel like for me, it's not just about, I, I don't, I don't, I don't see it as an observer would, you know, like I don't, I don't experience the memory as though I'm, I'm re I'm rewatching a memory. I feel like I'm reliving the memory. Um, and in many ways there's, there's a length of time that, you know, it, you know how when you dream time is different. I'm um, in the sense that, you know, 20 minutes in, in your real life, while you're sleeping could be two hours in a dream. Well, I feel like that. I feel this rush of, of experience that overwhelms me at moments and it's unexpected. And, and often um, it doesn't really have a catalyst. 
Um, at least if I knew what the triggers were, I could stop myself from feeling these things, but I just don't have that, you know? What I would recommend is that you read the book Super Better by Jane McGonigal. Um, not all of the book will be pertinent to that, but you'll enjoy the book anyways because it's it's just fascinating. It's and it's a really easy read. Um, but she, one of the things she talks about in there is using trauma, um, treating trauma, using things like Tetris or Candy Crush. There's a lot of explanation, but essentially it's because those type of things are meant to overload your senses. So what they do is they take people and they literally re-traumatize them. You know, somebody with PTSD, they make them think about the thing that's giving them PTSD and then play one of these games. And what happens Mm -hmm. is it starts to break the emotional connection to the data. So you have the data of the memory, but but the emotions are still, you know, fused to it. And by jumping into those games right afterwards, it breaks that that fusion. And so oh, interesting. you're able to remember that, you know, you're not losing the memory, but you're losing the way you, you, you know, not, you're not even, um, you're losing the intensity of the way you feel about it. You will remember it and go, oh, that was sad. You're not going to forget that. But you're not going to feel like, you know, like I need to crawl under a blanket for three days when you think about it. Mm. That's um, interesting. That's a, that might be the first time you've ever recommended that I actually do something on my phone to solve a problem. Yeah, that's true, huh? Well, you don't have to play those yeah. games on your phone. <laughs> get, get a Nintendo Switch. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not doing that. I can't. I I cannot own a game system ever again in my <laughs> my life, dude. Ever. I know. I know this about myself. I will never, ever, as much as I may really want to, I'm never going to own a game console ever again. And I'm probably the person that shouldn't own it for the other reason. I buy them and go, this is cool. And then I play it like once every four months or something like that. Wow, it's so weird how how different our reactions to certain things, Chad. Well, I think it's it, it makes sense. I mean, if, if our cores are different, then the way that we react to everything emanates from that core would sure. be different, right? You know, maybe that's you know that's one of the problems I think that people have with relating to each other. They expect everybody to react to the way that they react, even though they know they're different people. Sure, I mean that's that's something that I fundamentally find in politics often is you know, um, and it's not even it's not even that the end result is different from person to person. It's it's just how you get there that's different. Right. Like um, we won't go down the rabbit hole of what this means or anything like that. But I was watching um, the town hall with Jim Amash. Um, you know who that is, right? Yep. Um, and one of the, for people who don't know, he's a Republican, but he's one of the Republicans saying that Trump has done impeachable things um, from when he read the uh, the Mueller report. Um, like I said, not going into what that means or anything or how we feel about that, but there's one lady that stands up and has a, a Make America Great hat on. And I'm listening to her and her logic um, and the arguments and the, the, the things that are going back and forth. I mean, essentially, you have two Republicans arguing, um, but both from fundamentally different places. And I started thinking about that. And I'm like, that's a huge problem right there in the sense that, you know, we can talk about uh, post-truth and um, all of these other things that we talk about and fake news and all of these things, which there's some validity to some of these things, you know, like, these aren't things that are imaginary. These things happen. But one of the fundamental differences is this lady, the way she lived her life, led her to be the person that she is. And the person that she is 
is susceptible to these beliefs, just like he, the way he was raised and the way he grew up makes him susceptible to his belief. And the way that I grew up makes me susceptible to my beliefs. And that's what makes dialogue between people who don't agree so difficult because so much of identity is tied into it that you can't convince somebody with facts when their identity is the reason that they believe it, not the facts. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, like, for example, like, do you really think that uh, you could ever um, convince somebody from Zimbabwe something about their government? You know, like, oh, your government is good or bad or whatever. No, you're never going to convince them because, number one, you're not from there and you don't understand what they understand. And because they they grew up there, they understand... what they believe comes from their own understanding of the events of their life and the things that they've seen unfold. And you, no matter what you do, you're not going to change that. But I do feel like there is a way to find a common ground though. Uh, and, and, but, but that's much more a, a, a choice that the individuals within that conversation have to make rather right. than the disposition of a, a particular relatable point. You know what I mean? Like, the, I, I think empathy is a choice. And I think empathy within the scope of a conversation, especially concerning something like the, the, the political nature of our, our world or, or a specific government or, 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 or belief system thing is ultimately tied to that ability for us to be empathetic within the scope of a conversation. And very few people, especially especially as, as social media has, has risen to the level of fervor that it has, very few people have the patience for that empathy and that objectivity anymore. Well, it's not even the patience. I mean, that's part of it for sure. But there's also the people don't want it. And we're not talking, I'm not just talking women with Make America Great hats. I'm talking everybody on their political opinions is like, nope, don't want to hear your opinion because I've got it figured out. The left, the right, the center, and everything that doesn't count as one of those three things. And that's what's really hard about it. You're right. Because in, in order for a conversation, and you know, like the, the reason that our conversations are always um, progressive in the sense that we always feel like we get somewhere and we learn something is because we both come into it with that as our intention. I, I will slightly disagree with you on it, though. Um, I do think that patience is a huge part of the equation. Like in, in most of the the conversations that I have about politics, for example, um, I think I live and die by that patience. Um, and my ability to be patient has made me far more empathetic than I ever thought I could be, um, in particular with people who don't agree with me politically. And I think that if there's anything that I would want to try and and and, and give to the world um, from me in particular, it's that. Um, learning how to be patient within that context is so vitally important to finding a common ground. Right. And just to clarify, I didn't say that patience wasn't part of it. I just said it wasn't the whole part of it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Because mindset and patience and mindset, that kind of the same thing too, when you think about it, you know, that's patience is a choice too. Yeah, sure. Of course. I mean, I know for a fact, sometimes I'm like, I I don't care. I'm not going to be patient with this person right now. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, the validity of what they have to say is a big part of that as well. You know what I mean? Like there are some people who just speak out of their asses with very little information and have opinions based on nothing. And I'm not saying you can, you can or should be empathetic or patient towards everyone. There are definitely moments where you have to pick and choose. 
Yeah, if you're talking to Richard Spencer, just tell that guy to shut the fuck up. Yeah, some some people are just fucking crazy, and that's just the nature of humans. You know, it's just like I remember talking to a dog trainer at some point. I might even have mentioned this on the show at some point, um, and he's like, "Yeah, there are some dogs out there that are just stupid." <laughs> yeah, and and you can't train them because they're just dumb, and that's just the way it goes. And that and that I I think people are kind of like that too. I'm not saying people are inherently stupid or anything like that, but there are definitely people who who make decisions about opinions without nearly enough information to have that concrete opinion. And I feel like, especially with how social media and headline culture has kind of built itself into this rapid news cycle, um, that we get more and more of that. You know, there's so little information that people require now to form an opinion. Um, and that's, that's really the tough part about politics at the moment. Yeah, one of the, one of the things is there's, there's certain cultures... In specific, um, it's not just these people that do it, but there are certain cultures uh, within our own country that revel in ignorance. Um, you know, like they make jokes like, whatever, I don't know, I'm just ignorant. You know, like they're reveling in that because... Yeah, it's almost, it's almost a badge of honor. It's weird. And, you know, and on, on the opposite side of that, you have people that think they know so much that they have all of the information and that their information is the best and that they understand it as most, they're just as frustrating to talk to. I used yeah, to be and don't get me And don't get me wrong, by the way, this doesn't specifically speak to a certain political affiliation. Both not sides of the political spectrum do this. Yeah, not at all. You can find just as many racist, ignorant people on the left as you can on the right. Absolutely yep, it's true. It's absolutely true. They're just racist and ignorant about different things. Um, sure. And... And for some people, and it's not an excuse for all of them, but for some people, they don't really have much of a choice. Um, they, you know, they grew up in, with, in a, a place of poverty with a poor education, and everyone around them was in poverty and poor education. So how do you build your self-esteem if it's not coming off of intelligence? You, maybe you learn to travel in ignorance. There's also, there's also the indoctrination thing too, which is a big part of the equation. You know, if your family... Absolutely or your neighborhood, or your town, or whatever it, whatever it is, grew up with such a, a very specific and strong belief system, the chances of you making it out of that without having that belief system are infinitesimal at best, you know? And so, and so I think, I think that there's, there's, as much as there is a choice, like sometimes that choice is much harder than people think. Absolutely. I mean, all you have to do is look at, you know, like a, a map, you know, one of the maps, the red-blue maps. And, and I don't mean state by state, but I mean clusters, right? Voting clusters. Um, when you look at that, they cluster. What's sure. that mean? It means that if, you, if, if you're a Trump supporter, you're comfortable living around people who support him too. Why? Because it makes you feel comfortable. Um, if you can't stand him, you're probably living around people that can't stand him too. It, it, we cluster together. You know, like if you, if you like uh, a quiet neighborhood with nobody walking down the street... Most of the people that live in your neighborhood like that too. That's why they live there. If you like a, a place with lots of culture and you can get a taco at three in the morning, you know, the, you live around people who want that too. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's tough for people like um, I'm, there's a person that I'm currently hanging out with. I don't even know how to best say that um, without causing her some discomfort, but let's just say we're seeing each other. Um, and she grew up in a very small town 
that's inherently racist and was basically filled with people who are the worst version of what you would consider to be the conservative right. And she is somehow a progressive um, or more liberal leaning person that had to fight her way out of that environment. And that's a really, that's a really tough thing to, to, to come to terms with, you know, because it meant that she had to basically alienate herself from that world um, and all the people that she grew up with. And, and some of those people she, she cared about, but her, her belief system is so inherently different that she can't relate to them anymore. And that's really, really tough for her. Right. I mean, this is like when we talked about um, Daryl Davis and about people, how massive it is for somebody that's in the Ku Klux Klan to leave because they're walking away from all of their friends because their, their wife probably believes the same thing. Their parents, you know, like they're walking away from a life and and, and a life literally like everything that they've spent their whole life building up around them, their home, their job, probably, you know, they probably work with people that believe same thing too. Sure. We cluster like that. So it really is people that people that make massive changes like that are people that there were people that were um, gangbangers that, you know, become people out there trying to educate kids and get them into after school programs and stuff like that. Um, People who go to prison for armed robbery when they're young, because that's the neighborhood they grew up in that get released from prison and become positive members of society. All those people deserve far more credit than we ever give them because we think that it's just about the action or they're dealing with the action that they did. But no, it's not. It's about the strength to be able to walk from away from everything you know and build something new with no guarantees. Yeah, it's a, it's a cultural disassociation. And, and in many ways, it's not just about separating yourself from the environment, but it's about retraining your entire your entire stream of consciousness. You have, you have to learn to think a completely different way. And that's really tough to do. <laughs> right. You know, like um, Tom and I were talking about the, when you say something wrong and then you've been corrected, um, sometimes you accidentally say the thing wrong again. Um, and it's because it's training. And when it's something small, you know, like for our example, we were talking about um, maybe using a wrong word when I'm talking about transsexuals because you're not aware that uh, that word has a connotation this way. I, I can't think of a word as an example, um, but we'll just say uh, it's a random, like a, just a random word that you think is just a normal word. But like, actually, that has connotations towards male or female or, you know, whatever. And you're like, oh, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. There's chances are you're going to say that word again at some point. And I don't mean an epithet. I mean, just a normal word. Because to to you, it's just a normal word for most of your life, you know, 40 years, however old you are. And then somebody says, oh, that's this. You're not going to forget those 40 years of using that that word. Um, For example, I have a good one. Um, Please forgive me for anybody that doesn't like this word. I'm choosing a medium level offensive word here. Um, Spook. Um, They use it for the CIA. They use it for ghosts. It used to to be a very common term for African-Americans, black people. Um, You can use that word in in other senses other than that racist one. And then somebody says, don't use that word around me because, you know, maybe, maybe they're black. Like, can you not, you know, talk about ghosts and say, oh, you know, call it that. Can you say ghost or spirit or something else? Because every time you say that word, I feel a little uncomfortable, even though I don't know you, even though I know you don't mean it that way. 
it's probably going to come out of your mouth once or twice more because it's a word you didn't have a negative connotation to. Um, sure. And that is level one. And the people we're talking about are on like level, you know, 55 of difficulty above that. And sometimes it's not just words too. You're, you're talking about an entire social and cultural system that's built, um, you know, because it's, it's easy to, to give the example of, of something that small, but I mean, it's tougher to, to, to really understand how complex the cultural component is for a lot of these, these thoughts and beliefs that are, are basically um, ingrained into a person's head from the very, very beginning of their lives. You know, this, this is why I think the cultural disassociation thing is so, uh, so much more broad and, and far reaching than we typically give it credit for. Um, just because most of us don't grow up in environments that are that extreme. So from that perspective, we don't really understand what it's like to separate from that kind of environment or the type of bravery or, or, or complete rewiring necessary to, to complete that kind of transformation. But I think about some of our friends, for example, who have gotten out of Scientology and how hard that must have really been. Mm-hmm. You know, from from the perspective of of having to separate from this entire belief system and and everyone associated with it, um, and in many cases that includes family members or an entire family, and you become you become on the outside. I mean, especially for a religion like Scientology, and I mean, for anyone who's a Scientologist, I'm sorry if I'm offending you, but um, you know, th- there's within the doctrine of Scientology when a person leaves the church. Um, everyone that they're associated with, including family, has to disassociate with them completely. And that's horrifying. I mean, the choice to have to do something like that is absolutely brutal. <laughs> yeah, especially when you're talking about the people being, you know, your parents and your siblings. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, yeah, we I mean, know people, by the way. We know, we know people who've had to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and the example I'm thinking of in particular, I mean, he had to go to therapy for years in order to fight his way through it. And he's right. still to this day on some level dealing with that, you know? Yeah, it's not as easy as we make it out to be. Um, you know, one one of the, another book that I just read um, was, I finally sat down and read Freakonomics. Mm. And one of the things they're talking about in there, which is a smaller part of the book, but it kind of stood out to me the most, was uh, they lay out... Eight, well, 16. They lay out 16 things, which I'm not going to list because obviously I don't have photographic memory or eidetic memory. Um, but they lay out 16 things and they go, eight of these have been shown to affect the long term, um, you know, the, the, the long term develop of a child, um, development of a child, sorry, um, how they learn and how they end up as a person. And eight of these aren't. And they list them off, and some of them, you would swear, were on the other side. And they're like, "There's no evidence to prove that." Like, for example, um, the reason I'm bringing this up before I go off on this little small tangent, the reason I'm bringing it up is the importance of influence on even just on a child. But you know, take that to an adult. That's just it doesn't end with childhood. Um, but like, for example, like uh, taking a, ch- a child to a museum or reading to them every day shows to have no effect. On one way or the other. Really? Um, yeah. Shocking, right? But you know what? Huh. Two, two of the eight that I definitely remember that um, made a huge influence. Socioeconomic status. So mm-hmm. poverty, non-poverty, huge influence. And the education of the parents. Mm. So, I mean, going back to, you know, like people coming from, you know, poor places, 
they're at, it doesn't mean that you can't rise out of that. You know, we've seen examples of that, but there's so much going against you. Um, like literally your ability to learn, you know, because if you live in a poor neighborhood, it's probably because your parents, it's not usually because your parents fucked up. It's because they didn't have a very good education. So they're doing the best they can, right? That's usually how people end up in those situations. People don't usually sure. end up in impoverished neighborhoods because they, you know, lost all of their money on Wall Street. You know, it's it's not one action. You know, it's 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 a, a deficit for their whole life. Um, so yeah, it's just fascinating because you know he's like going through these things and he's like this affects it and this affects it, and it's it really is that made me start to think about where I'm like some people. It's almost, I would never say 100%, but it's almost like they have no shot. Like, wow, you believe that and you feel that way and you did that thing because, I mean, what the hell else were you going to do? Sure. You know, like if you go up in the ghetto, I'm pretty sure that architect is not the number one job possibility. People oh, you probably sure. don't even know an architect in the ghetto. You know, because if you make money of an architect, you wouldn't be living there. You know, what's funny is, um, I, so, man, I forget who I was talking with this recently. Um, so I didn't grow up in the richest of neighborhoods. And so there was definitely an, an expectation that was very different. So the first two years of high school, I went to a, a high school in that neighborhood, you know, poor socioeconomics. Um, so the the expectation level um, of the individual students and the potential options for those students was far more limited than the last two years of uh, my high school experience where I went to a much more affluent school in a much richer neighborhood where the sky was the limit. And, and you, were, you were taught to believe that from a very early age. And you could see the invincibility that was inherent in, in the students from the better socioeconomic environment. Um, I, and I'm not even sure if that's ultimately beneficial or, or detrimental, but I definitely saw a very big difference in, in attitude um, between one environment and the other. And it was not a, a person-to-person difference. It was the entire environment, the teachers, the, the, the administrators, the parents, you know, in, in the richer socioeconomic um, environment, were all about looking forward and building towards a magical future and living out your dreams versus in the, the, the poor socioeconomic environment, where it's much more about survival, um, find a good teammate, um, build a life together, have kids and support those kids. It was a much more, it, I, it was a very stark, stark contrast to where I, wherein I was able to see the, the line of delineation between the white collar and the blue collar world. It's really weird. I think that's one of the reasons that, one of the things that people who, who get upset about um, money that's put towards taking care of immigrants and making sure that immigrants and their children, more, more so the children than the immigrants themselves, have an opportunity for upward mobility. And first of all, there are a lot of people that are coming over from other countries that have a higher level of education than where they're going to be able to live because, you know, either their degree or their skill or even just their language doesn't translate to this country very well. So their job opportunities are very narrow. So they end up living in poorer neighborhoods, even though they may be higher educated people. Um, and then if their children stay there, if they don't get out of that neighborhood, 
then now you're creating the situation of people who grew up in poverty, which means that their children are going to grow up in poverty and those children are going to grow up in poverty. So the importance of upward mobility for the children of immigrants is to prevent, not only is it charity and we should be good people as a country, but it's to prevent creating another poor class, another class, another generation upon generation of people stuck in poverty. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where the, 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 the ground is level enough that all of us can stand on the same foundational place? Yeah, I do. I really do. Do you really? Wow, yes. you're optimistic. I think that I have I have more oppor- opportunistic. I mean, opportunistic. Wow, that's a bad. <laughs> I'm more positive. <laughs> I don't know what word I was going for there. I, I um, am. You're optimistic. I think yeah. optimistic is what you were reaching yeah. for, and just saying the wrong word totally threw me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait, that's the opposite of what I mean here. Um, I'm more positive about that than I am about. Um, people getting along to be honest mm, interesting i think people are always going to argue and there's always going to be unfortunately some form of hatred um i just think you can't prevent that but i do think that you're going to get to a place where and the reason i can believe that is because despite the fact that some people's lives suck right now and that yeah uh, there's a whole, huge portion of this country where the economic growth that's happened still hasn't reached them even though that exists even though that's true, if you look back over at history, it's pretty much an incline of positive and less dangerous life. People don't die as young. There's less murder. Um, mm-hmm. People are getting more nutrition. People are getting more health care. So throughout the, 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 all of history, it's been going up. So I assume it's going to continue to go up. Now, I know that that is an assumption, but that's why I can feel that way about that. But when you look back at history about um, hatred and racial classes, it goes back and forth. People seem to be getting along for a couple decades. People are tearing each other apart for a couple decades. And it just keeps going back and forth like the tides. How? Hmm. Okay, this is completely off the wall, but kind of related. At what point do you think we start adding augmentations to that? You mean like to our bodies? Yeah. I'm not Let's sure get how, super uh, weird. I'm not, I'm <laughs> I don't not know sure. why. I've been kind of thinking about that lately, actually. I'm but, not catching yeah, the, how it relates, though. you got to clarify. It doesn't that. really. It, it doesn't really. I, it, part of the reason why, I, because I'm thinking about what you're saying from a tribalistic perspective, right? And I think the thing that, that, that you're talking about is never being able to rid our culture entirely, of, or not culture, but our species entirely of tribalism. And right. as we progressively grow and the planet gets... Uh, more populated, I don't think the tribes change. I just think the tribes just eventually get bigger and bigger and bigger. But the tribes still exist. Um, and I think the tough part for, for us as, as, a, as a species is as the tribes themselves physically get larger and larger, they become more specific to themselves. And so from that perspective, it becomes harder and harder for the tribes to relate to each other. I'm not sure I believe that the tribes get bigger. It seems that they fragment. Um, like if you go back to so? the dark ages, it's Christians and non-Christians. That's pretty big. That's pretty big level. Yeah. Now That's it's you know, yeah, maybe Protestant against Catholic against um, you know Joel Olstein against Pat Robertson. You know, like it's getting smaller, and I think it's because of the internet. Oh sure. We, we have access to these niches now. You know, that's why you have so many anti-vaxxers and stuff like that. We talked about that before. They can connect with each other in a way that they couldn't, so they can 
now they're able to perpetuate that movement in a way that it would have fizzled out before because they wouldn't have been in contact. Interesting. That might have been the first time you've actually changed my mind in real time. <laughs> Wasn't my intention, so... I yeah, but I think you're totally right. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think about our conversation about flat earthers and in all seriousness, I, I can see how that movement would have been very different in the 80s versus where it is now. Yeah, it would have been a bunch of people with signs. Maybe they would have got on television and then it just kind of would have fizzled. They would probably, you know, there'd probably still be people out there and believed it. But you know, now they can just, you know, they get a Facebook group and they can just talk to each other and keep talking to each other. And that's, you know, that's the, like you've said before, that's that's the same thing that happened with our political system where people are just, they get into these bubbles of, of it's not just you that said it, everybody's been saying it since Trump got elected, but people get into bubbles and they just perpetuate their bubble. Um, you know, like um, one of the things, going back to that Amash thing, just briefly, one of the things that the lady said with the, with the Make America Great hat I refuse to use the stupid acronym. Um, she said something along the lines of, you know, it's a talking point that's come up very much. Like you, you can't, um, you can't be covering up something if there wasn't a crime to cover up, you know? And Amash said, that's not true. And she says, Oh, you just believe, you know, you just believe this stuff. You just believe the lie, basically. It's not exactly what she said. Um, she said it a little bit better than that. I'm just briefing it. You believe the lie. And he's like, well, I don't know what to say if, if you don't believe that. He's like, it's just simply not legally true. Mm. But they're both perfect. That's, that's a perfect example of, you know, like she heard somebody say that point and somebody else say that point. And, you know, like, and I'm not putting anything bad on her. I'm just saying, you know, like she was part of a bubble and that idea perpetuated, even though that, um, if you look at the law, it's not true. And then what she's accusing him of is being in that bubble. Because the reason that comes up is because it happens. This happens all the time. We're all doing it. We're all in a bubble. Lamb, you and I are in a bubble of some sort. Sure. I mean, if you want to call just you and I a, as a bubble, we have kind of a bubble on this show where it's like we make, we, well, not make fun of, but we, we pick on Democrats as much as we pick on Republicans. That's kind of a bubble. Yeah, I mean... Don't get me wrong, though. I mean, I'm I'm fully aware of the the existence that we have within the bubbles that we create for ourselves. But I think that you know, especially the last two years of my life, because of the political stuff that I've been doing, um, I try as best I can to find my way into other bubbles so I can see what that perspective looks like. I'm not always successful, obviously. You know, there are times where the bubbles are so resistant that it's it's hard to find any face time with anybody within that bubble. But for the most part, I feel like being able to puncture those bubbles by being, I, I feel like I want to be that political needle. You know what I mean? I want to be the person that, that forces his way into the bubbles that exist both on the, the liberal and conservative sides and tries to, you know, dilute the pool altogether so that we can share thoughts and somehow find solutions that won't lead to the, the, the falling of America. <laughs> Do you think that's actually possible? I mean, I don't, really, I don't really. know. I, I, I don't know, but I have to, at least on some level, believe that it is because I, I, I want to achieve it, you know? I feel like, like um, we'll use Jim Amash as an example, right? He's going against his party. So in a sure. way, he's, he's piercing a bubble, right? Yep. But all of the, and like one of the things that comes up in there, he's like, he's like if you look, because she says, you're just a Democrat. And he's like, actually, if you look on my votes, he's like, I am at the top 
or when it comes to fisc- fiscal conservativeness and all this stuff, he's like, I'm at the top or near the top of every list on every vote for my whole time in Congress. And But all of that time, all of that stuff, being a conservative, he gets no credit for it because he pierced the bubble. Sure. Now, now he's on the other side. So you can't really... I mean, there's an argument to be said. You can't really go between them because once you pierce the bubble... They won't let you back in. Ugh, so weird. You know, like if you make friends with enough Republicans, your Democratic friends are going to turn against you. You make friends, um, vice versa. If you're a Trump supporter and you make enough friends with people who voted for Hillary, your Trump supporter friends probably won't let you back in either. Sure. And there's a tangible fear of that too. I mean, I, I can't say that I'm not. I can't say that I'm not mean to it. I definitely feel that as well because I have quite a few conversations with more more central Republicans, and I feel like if if enough of my liberal friends knew about that, that they would ostracize me. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong; I don't care um, because any friend of mine that's willing to ostracize me for having a conversation with another human being doesn't. Re- I don't really want that person as a friend or an ally. But from that perspective, I've, I I also have that that twinge in the back of my 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 mind. You know that that fear that. Um, I might lose. I might lose allies because I'm making new friends. It's very weird. I, you know, how I stand on this. I, I, I believe that in the complete eradication of Republican and Democrat. I don't believe there should be political parties. You should have to oh, vote sure. and believe all the things you believe. That's it. You should have to stand up as an individual. You don't get any party backing. That's it. You know, I believe that, you know, like whatever, you know, I believe in climate change and I believe in the Green New Deal, but I also don't believe in abortion. Whoa, that's a really complex thing. Guess what? That's a normal human being. You have things that don't all fit into one group. And that's how you should have to run. That's how you should have to run. These are things I believe you have. Everybody should have to make a compromise when voting. You know, like I believe in this issue and this issue and this issue. Um, I don't believe in that one that he believes in, but it's not as important to me as those other ones. Mm, sure. Because that's life. I mean, in reality, I, I, I want to take that back. That's not how you should be voting at all. I, don't, I was thinking about this the other day and I wanted to talk to you about this. I think one of the problems we have is that we vote for issues and we shouldn't be voting for issues. We should be voting for process. You shouldn't care as much about what someone you vote for's belief on particular issues is, you should care for how they will conduct their job and how they will how they conduct themselves as a person. Because if they are not an honest, trustworthy person, you can't trust them to follow through on those issues anyways. Does that make sense? Am yeah. I am I making that point clear? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I mean, it applies. It, it applies. It's kind of the way I've always operated in business as well, and I think it's an effective way to go about it. Which is, you know, I sure the resume is important, but I always hire a person. I don't really care that much about the resume, as long as they have a certain number of qualifications, obviously. But in 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 almost every circumstance in which I've been in charge of hiring, I've always spent a lot of time with the candidates. Um, just so I can really figure out how they tick um, and who they are. And I think that is far more critical in the long run to the success of anything, whether it's a business or a political system, or in this particular case, a country. I think the person is a hundred times more important than than a particular thing that they, they voted on or whatever it may be. You know, So I agree with you, like the way they conduct themselves and the, the process and, and the overall... I think the, 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 the better way to put it is is... 
you have to see how they are and how the bigger picture affects both them and how they affect the bigger picture in order to make an accurate and logical decision about their effectiveness in a particular job or in this particular case, a, a you know political figure. Right, like um, cops, for example. Do you want a cop who, you, you know, like say we elected cops, would you elect a cop who he's like, well, I, I can't stand drugs. That's a really big problem for me. I hate drugs. But, you know, sometimes people get murdered. Whatever. <laughs> but, the, you know, those are issues. You know, like, don't worry about what I'm actually saying, but they're issues, right? And so, so what that would insinuate is he's probably going to work really hard to bust people for drugs, not so much for people who commit murder. That's too much work. Sure. Okay, so sure. he's, he's, he chose issues. This is how we pick politicians currently. We pick people like that. Instead, what you would want is a cop who goes, I'm here to enforce the law. If whether they are a drug pusher, whether they are a murderer, whether they are a pedophile, my job is to arrest them and put them into the system and let the system decide their guilt or their innocence. That's the cop you want. Who Absolutely. And that's the politician you want. Do you want the politician who goes in and says, okay, the process here is that we put this to a vote. And if it gets to the vote, then it goes to this. That's going to follow that process. You don't want the person who cares so much about their issue that they're willing to break things in order to achieve them. Because once those sure. things are broken, everybody gets to play on the broken mechanism. Well, because that at that point, at, at, at that point we're talking about personal politics versus the greater good. You know what I mean? And yes. I think, you know, something that we, we spend so much time on in the on this show and just in general as people. Um, and, and something I constantly think about is what, what affects the greater good. You know, and this is why I think the, the overriding thing that I'm trying to learn in my own life and the thing that I hope to bring to politics as I become, become more and more um, involved in politics is objectivity. We lack objectivity in this society and we lack it at a level that is alarming and growing. Yeah, I mean, I would almost... So I think for me, when I hear the greater good, I know what you mean, but I'm kind of afraid to prescribe that to people because I think it leads to pompous behavior. You know, like people think that they can do something because they're like, you know, you're you're putting too much onto, onto the greater good. You know, people don't always have a good barometer of what the greater good is. Um, mm-hmm. to, to me... I'm more worried about um, thinking about people as, you know, like what if every single person, and I don't do this all the time, but this is something I'm working on. Every single person going, what if that was my child? What if that was my kid? Even, you know, somebody in their 80s, you know, what if I was 100 and that was my kid? How would I look at that person? How would I deal with the situation? You know, like uh, some some guy that's having, uh, you know, like a, a homeless guy on the streets having a mental problem and he's he's breathing all over you and he smells, you know, because he's got mildewy clothes and all of this stuff. And you can push him away and go, get the fuck away from me, you fucking gross thing. You know, you could be an asshole. Or, you know, think like, what if that was my child? And I'm not asking you to like embrace him or anything like that, but at least take the moment to think that and go, I can at least tolerate this for a moment and not be an asshole and take that to everything. And I think that taking it to a small scale leads to, I mean, I'm not, I'm not 
as people who've listened as long enough know, I am not a religious person, but I'll, I'll take this to the example of um, that the Bible mentions of Jesus, the idea of healing people, facing people one at a time, not dealing with groups, helping people, uh, you know, the, the idea of the person that's fallen in front of you. Don't worry about all the other people in the world falling because there's a person in front of you right now. Worry about that person. Mm. And that's what I, well, mean, I not to correct you or anything. That's just how I think. No, I understand. Um, I still do think that there is a place, at least in my mind, there's a very strong place for what the greater good represents. Um, you know, I, 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 there's this particular, I think it's Plato. Um, there's a particular thing that Plato says that has always stuck with me um, when I think about, you know, my path through politics and what I've done in my political journey and stuff like that, which is um, a, a society grows great when a man plants a tree whose shade he knows he'll never sit in. Um, I might have even said that on the show at some point. But I definitely do believe that at the very core of all of this, there is an objective and a unifying greater good. Even if the details may change from person to person or policy to policy, there's a way to approach politics and policy with a sense of kindness and with a sense of pragmatism that can move society forward. And I do believe that there are people out there who have the ability to see the world that way. I just don't think there are very many of them. And I think that that number is shrinking. Yeah, I mean, and I, I obviously I agree with this, the sentiment of what you're saying. I think my main problem is just the use of that term because it's the kind of term that, you know, like uh, Hitler's and Stalin's come up using as well. Yeah, that's true. A lot of people use that term in the most horrifying ways. Yeah, that's so I'm, I'm very... I think that's just too big of a phrase for me where I'm like, mm. Mm, you can yeah. do too, too much damage with that, with that phrase. Yeah, that's true. And, and so I, I think the social stigma damages, damages it for you, but I can't think of a better way to say it than that. Yeah. I don't know. It's just one of those things that maybe we should think of a term for a new term. Make up something new. How's that one? <laughs> Want to say that word more than once? <laughs> the, ah. the the gagger gog i don't know something mm, lamb i have um i haven't done this in a while i have a recommendation for you oh wow okay what do you, you got you being you being the science the science lover that you are check out the podcast called ologies o l o you know like pathology um you know words that end in ology it's ologies with Allie ward it's awesome interesting okay it's yeah, awesome check that out she talks to scientists and about their, you know, whatever their field is. But she's also, excuse me, burping. Um, wow. She also, she just does it in a very, in a very relaxed manner. A lot of um, science communication um, is boring. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it's not because it's from scientists to scientists, which it can be sometimes, but it's done so dry. That's why people love things like Radiolab and they love, um, what's his name? The um, Star Talk. What's his name? Oh, no, the Grass Tyson. Yes, thank you. Had a brain fart. Um, that's why they love them because they, they communicate in a different way. Or Bill Nye, right? She does a really good job. Like there's, um, there's an episode about, I think, sex, sexology. And in the description for the episode, I haven't even listened to the episode. I just saw it. It says, why do we bone? I'm like, ah, that's hilarious. <laughs> you know, it's like something a normal person says, but you don't see that in the description of a podcast about science ever. Um, that's amazing. 
Yeah, she's great. Um, I wish she was a real redhead, but she says that she's an elective redhead. So she gets no. half, half credit. <laughs> yeah, she's headed in the right direction. She gets uh, for anyone who doesn't for anyone who doesn't know, Chad has a huge thing for redheads. Mm. Sophie Turner from uh, Game of Thrones, by the way, who's like way younger than me, but elective redhead as well. She's a blonde. Mm, gotcha. Most people think she's a redhead because she's playing Jean Grey as a redhead too. Um, mm. Anyways, um, let me see. What's the clock on the wall say? Oh, we got a little bit of time. We have some challenges to talk about, don't we? Yes, we do. I have the reason I'm going over to that right now is because I'm might go a little long on some of mine. So take your time in talking about yours because we're in no rush. I have yours in case you don't remember it. Oh, I totally remember mine. Um, okay. So my challenge was to draw that. Was that my challenge? Actually, now that I'm thinking no. about it. No, that was What your, was my challenge? Uh, your challenge was to, it was your mom specifically, take someone oh. on an artist date. <laughs> Well, that was one of the most frustrating days I've ever had um, really? as a resident of the Bay Area. Not because of the art thing, but because we never even made it there. Um, um, where'd you go? Try to go, MoMA? We, no, we tried to go to um, the De Young in the middle of San Francisco, smack dab in the middle of a Giants game and a parade. Oh, um, Jesus. So, we, so first of all, we didn't know any of this. So we went to eat Chinese food um, in Foster City. There's this great dumpling place. I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but it was fantastic. Um, and then we looked at Google Maps, and Google Maps said it was going to take from Foster City, mind you, which is not that far from San Francisco. On a normal day, it's 30 minutes at most. Um, it said an hour and 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, we, and we still had a decent amount of time in the day, so we figured, ah, let's just, let's just see if it gets any faster. Um, so we started to head towards the city. And basically, the hour and 40 minutes stayed an hour and 40 minutes for the next hour of our lives. So that basically meant that the time to get to the De Young was steadily increasing as we were heading closer and closer to it. Mm. We ended up driving for two hours only to find that the De Young was so jam-packed that we could not find parking anywhere within a mile of um, a mile of the museum itself. And so we decided to take a long drive down um, Highway 1, uh, which is the Pacific Coast Highway for anyone who, who isn't from California. and Maryland. Yep, had a great. Oh, yeah, thank you. By the way, Maryland, um, which then led to us being able to spend a lot more quality time together. So ultimately, the day ended up great anyway. It just wasn't the kind of great that that was appropriate for the challenge. So I still needed to take her to a museum at some point. Mm, you don't feel that? Um, oh, your yeah, your challenge was to basically to expose her to art. Right? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say as far as artist state that would qualify, but you had a specific goal with your mom in mind. That sucks. Yes, I did. Yeah, it's horrible. I mean, it, it, I, I can't even understand how people live in the city on a day like that. It was, there's so many people. Yeah. I don't, I'm not in, in some ways I'm such a city dweller. And in some ways I totally am not. I, I kind of live in the perfect situation, suburbs, you know, like I can access what I need from the city pretty rapidly within five minutes. But I'm also not inundated with people. I can walk down the streets and just space out. Mm. How'd you do on yours? Uh, mine was, how many days can I go without... I, I put video. The reason I put video is because TV, YouTube, same thing to me. Movies. 
I'm going to let you guys. Lamb, how many days did I go without? I I think two. Six. Six? No way. That is that is amazing, Chad. I watched it Thursday night after we recorded, and then I didn't turn on the TV again. I haven't turned the TV on yet. That's amazing. That's incredible. Considering how much TV you would just have going on in the background, actually, um, that's kind of incredible. So what? So actually, that leads to a, a, an interesting um, circumstance in which what did you do as background noise or did you just mm-hmm. not have background noise? That's why That's why I went to the challenges early because I knew that this was probably going to lead to a longer conversation. Um, so I don't even know where to begin. There's so much to say about this. Uh, to answer your question, background noise, none. I just didn't have background noise. Um, at least for the first two or three days, I was shocked by how easy it was. Because the time that I would normally go to bed, I'd look up and I'm like, it's time to go to bed. And I'm like, oh. And I would think, where would I fit TV into my day? You know, like I didn't notice a hole. I, I, I don't know if I just filled it up really fast, really easily that I never thought about. It. But literally, like I'm like, there's no point in my day where I sat in my chair and went, hmm, this is when I would normally be watching TV. I was just busy from the moment I woke up to the time I went to bed. So nothing really filled it. What I what filled the the vacancy of television, maybe not the background noise of your question, but what filled the vacancy is books and podcasts. Not a ton more podcasts than I normally did. Maybe I listened to like half hour to an hour more than I normally would. Um, but books, I in in the seven days, I read five books. Whoa! So. <laughs> I was hoping some writing would happen in there too, but no, I just read more. <laughs> well, hey, maybe you need to recharge the battery. I mean, I, I definitely go through phases, and I know you do too, um, where I'll want to consume versus create, and I feel mm-hmm. like that recharges my battery. Yeah, and I'm in just a, a peculiar place right now with writing, and, and like I have so many little. I mean, I, I'm doing the journals and the notebook, my my notebook for myself, and my journal for Patreon every so often. But like, other than that, that's the bulk of my writing right now, but I'm happy with that just because it's getting me into a good place. The, the not watching television has been very similar to me in experience to the long walks in the sense that I find, God, I was trying to think when I was walking today, I was trying to think of a metaphor of how I was going to explain this to you because one of the things I have noticed, um, you and, I, you and I talked about this before, but it also came up in some of the interviews that I've done. Um, notably, the one that I can think of right now is Suhita. Um, when I asked the question if she, had, if she meditated, and she said, uh, no, but um, I think she said she walked. Um, I know Kim Wallish also said a similar thing. Um, and what I've realized in the time without the television, doing the long walks and not meditating that there is a drastic difference between those two things. That um, one of the things you had said in the last episode was maybe the long walks are my meditation, but they aren't. They're literally almost polar opposites, which is a weird thing to say. And what was the metaphor? I was trying to use a, a shelf as a metaphor because walking and silence in general is like clearing space. 
Meditation is more like building the shelf. So you're building a, a structure for the space. Interesting. Yeah, and it like you need both. You can't. You have to have the silence, but you also have to like you can't. I think some people maybe meditate too much and they don't have enough silence where they let their their mind flow. I think maybe the metaphor is not important. What's really different is that meditation is focusing your thought. I'm learning to pay attention for most people. It's I'm learning to pay attention to my breath and I'm pushing all of this other stuff out so that I can focus on this. Back to my breath. Back to my breath. That's focus. But the walks and silence and stuff like that or boredom like um, Neil Gaiman talks about, is about not focusing your thoughts. It's about letting it run in the field, just letting it go and wander and, and lilt around on the breeze. You need both. I think they're very different. I don't think I have any focus. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in a weird kind of way, it's funny. You, you, you led me right into my challenge. And it's a challenge that I've literally had since the last episode. Go for it. Um, my challenge is to meditate more. <laughs> you want to, and you to find want to laugh? That's mine too. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the more specific one though. I need to find a way to meditate that works for me because I've never found that. I'm going to give you a, a suggestion that I'm using in mine. I'm not, I'm not joking. I literally have mine written down. It was to do yoga and meditation every day. That's funny. Because I'm finding I need the physical thing from the yoga too. Burp. Um, when I was reading, shit, I want to say it was Michael Hyatt's Your Best Year Ever or one of the other productivity books that I've read in the last couple months. Um, one of the things that they said is really important is to be more specific. So not, I need to meditate. That doesn't do shit for you. You need to say, um, I'll give you an example of mine. I need to do 10 minutes minimum of meditation every day at 8 p.m. in my living room. Mm. Because when you give it that specificity, you give yourself the ability to actually tackle it. But when you leave it too ambiguous, then you can find ways around it. Interesting. Okay. So that, that's, that's mine. That's, good, that's literally that's a good mine. methodology. I, I, I'll try to think about what that's going to look like for me um, because I definitely... Yeah, we don't need I, to know I, the specifics. I, yeah, yeah. I, give myself, I give myself too far too many outs for doing it. Um, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's I'm justifying it because I'm too busy or whatever it may be. I give myself far too many reasons not to do it, but I need to do it. That's like what, what I was saying to you yesterday when we were at coffee about creating. You need to block out the time and go, this is the creating time. Period. Mm, yeah, sure. Just like you would say, this is when I have to be at the meeting. Um, this is when I'm. Uh, I have dinner plans. Same exact thing, and you honor the same thing. Um, what's her name? Can't remember her name. It's the online marketing made easy podcast. Heard a couple episodes of that, um, and she calls it Tiger Time. You got to guard it like like a tiger. This is my time, and I like that. Mm. Um, yeah, by the way, everybody, um, Lamb, Tom, Latte, and I all had coffee yesterday with Mr. Ryan Hernandez. And if you go over to randombadassery.fireside.fm, almost forgot the URL, and click on blog, you can see some photos. 
It's just one photo of each of them. Nothing of me. Hmm. Try to do a little bit more of that stuff every once in a while for you guys. Little store, uh, store, show related stuff. Um, I was going to say something else about this. Um, you know what I wanted to talk to you about? Actually, this is sort of Patreon, but it's, I mean, it is Patreon, but something interesting. I, I kind of touched on it with you yesterday, but this realization that I think goes back to, and I want, when we talk about this, I want us to go back into the clearing space and all of that. Um, but one of the things that came out of that, as I was thinking about what I'm putting in all of these things into Patreon, I'm one of the things I've been putting in is retired shows. And I had this realization where I'm like, why are they retired? You know, like I can understand, you know, like the tech show that you and I did. That's retired because number one, we're doing this. And number two, we mm-hmm. kind of ran out of steam on that. But the ones that I did by myself, why are they retired? You know, like, um, and I, and the answer to that, of course, was it was very hard for me to keep up this show and another show. Um, because, you know, like, for example, this show comes out twice a week. But most of the time it's existed, it's come out once a week. Um, so no matter what, because it's public, it's going out there, people are following it on RSS, or some people will just come and listen. They don't even subscribe, um, which is interesting to me in, in and of itself. But it's important for me to always get an episode out on a consistent basis. Because that's what I've kind of, you know, it's kind of the, the unspoken promise that I've made, right? With with the audience. So I couldn't do that with these other shows. I just wasn't able to to keep up with it um, headspace-wise and responsibility-wise. For example, I'm talking about the first, my solo show, what I want to talk about, and then uh, Pants in the Chair, um, which was my novel writing journal, I called it. Um, but it occurs to me, that if these things live in Patreon, whenever I decide to make an episode for one of them, I can just release it. There's no promise of a regular schedule or anything like that because it's just a bonus that comes with Patreon. I'm putting other stuff up on Patreon constantly, but I'm not saying, you know, become my patron so that you can get an episode of Pants in the Chair every week. I'm saying become my patron so that you can have access for all this, to all the stuff the library of stuff that I'm creating and have already created that's available there. And then when, mm-hmm. when I have time, you know, because I was listening, I honestly, the reason I thought about it was listening to the Pants in the Chair episodes and I was expecting them to be dreadful. And I was like, I, I really like every single one of these. And then oh, I was like, interesting. And I have so much more to say because I haven't finished the novel yet. So the, the whole point of that podcast was to share the experience. And I still have so far to go. So that's that's one of the things I'm I'm going to start doing on the Patreon is every once in a while I'm going to make an episode that might fit into one of those shows that's quote unquote retired just for the fun of it. Why why call them? I, I thought about it because it's a tag I was using retired shows and I'm like no, I took off that tag and they're just called podcasts. Hmm, interesting. Retired. Are you are you going to release them um, into the podcast world as well or are they just going to live there? Just for patrons. Um, Got it. One of the things that Patreon does that's really awesome is all of the audio files are accessible to patrons as an RSS feed. So whether you have Apple Podcasts or Overcast, you can get that 
RSS feed, drop it in, and it's just like a normal podcast in that app for you. So anytime I put any kind of audio on there, it's going to show up in there. So like if you went in now, you'd see all of the archived shows that are already in there, which are multiple shows, but they're all in one feed. They only offer you one feed. So it's basically the perfect situation where it's like, oh, you might get an episode of Pants and Chair. You might get an episode of what I want to talk about. You might just get audio of me noodling on my guitar. You never know. Mm. You could get a random phone call with somebody. Who knows? I have an idea for... Oh, that's, a, that's a cool idea. <laughs> it's like a five-minute phone call with somebody. You know, like who knows? Or um, I have an idea for an original podcast that's going to be patron only. And uh, yeah, I might as well... T- should I tell them about it? I told you about it, didn't I? Uh, you mentioned it briefly, but I think you, you said that you were going to tell me the details on the show. So it's kind of appropriate that you'd do it now. Oh, I forgot I did that. Remember that part where I said my memory is pretty good? <laughs> Damn it. I remember saying that it was good. Um, so here's the idea. I'm, I'm not sure on the name. I might put up a poll for patrons when I do it for people to help me decide what to call it. It's not really important because it's all in one feed. So it's not as important as it is in the normal podcast thing. I can always change it if I don't like it. But it's either going to be what's in the box, shit in a box, shit I found in a box, or a box of junk. Um, I'm not a big fan of box of junk because it kind of goes against the whole idea of the show. But I have a bunch of stuff outside in boxes that I haven't got rid of because it's not junk. So that's why that name doesn't work so well. But it's also stuff that I obviously have perfectly... I'm perfectly okay with living inside of a box because I'm not using it. Um, And I would like to get rid of some of that stuff. But sometimes you have attachments to objects. And and I don't mean like, this is, you know, this was my grandmother's wedding ring or this is uh, the present that I got when I graduated high school from from my grandfather and he's no longer with us. Not, not that kind of stuff. But just like stuff that you accumulate through your life that like maybe has like kind of a good vibe to it or a good memory to it. You know, like here's this little goofy little toy. I remember playing with this little fucker all the time. You, don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you don't really need it at 41, but you kind of feel bad to get rid of it as well, don't you? Sure. So I, what I want to do is I want to bust open that box and when I do an episode, I'm just going to reach in and I'm going to pull something out of the box. I'm going to take a photo of it. And then I'm going to tell a story about it on the podcast. And then after I'm done with the story, I'm going to donate it. Hmm. The object, not the podcast. <laughs> where, well, where are you going to donate the, the, the thing depends on, to? Depends on what it is. Okay, gotcha. That makes sense. Um, I'm feeding Latte right now. Latte, say hello to everybody. Test. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> see, see if that that object can bring joy to someone else's life in the same way it did to you. Yeah, and if it's you know like, I'll probably run across some stuff that I won't be able to get rid of, but that's fine. But I, at least I can work through some of that. But at the end, would be interesting content, you know, like yeah. because there there's there are stories behind objects, and those stories, if they're strong enough for you not to want to get rid of it, they're probably strong enough to be interesting to hear. Sure. So that's an idea that I have for patrons. Um, and we're going to get your Patreon up soon too. We got to do that. Yep. 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 Tom's already on board to do his. 
Um, as soon as you guys make yours, I will take the thing from linking. I mentioned this in last episode. For anybody that didn't hear last episode, the patrons, we're all going to do a separate Patreon. Part of it is because it'll push each of us to create individually, but also because, to be honest, I don't want to go through all the tax and all of the... I don't want to become an employer of my co-hosts. Where the money yeah, comes sure. in, I have to decide what percentage goes to what person and how much taxes I have to take out or whether I 1099 you guys or... I don't want to do that shit. I just want to turn in my personal taxes. You turn in your personal taxes. Tom turns in his. So what that means is if you think Chad, me, I'm talking to third person, talks too much and you like Lamb, you can support Lamb and you don't have to support me. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it's gonna. And we're all gonna support each other's Patreons, of course, because we are a team. Of course. Um, and I just say I think it's gonna be really, really fun. I want. This is one of the reasons. One of the goals. Tom and I. I don't think we talked about it on the episode. One of the things I want. If I did, I'm sorry if you guys are hearing this again. What I want is a physical studio. I want a physical studio where we sit down to record these face to face. And I also want it to be a place for us to be creative. Like there's instruments around and there's all this other shit around. So that when I sit down to record an episode with you, if Lambs, I mean, if uh, Tom happens to be around, be like, oh, screw it. Let's just make it a three-parter. You know, th- all three of us will do it. Um, hey, let's all just make a song or, you know, like a, a place for us to be creative. And if we can get our Patreons going, we can all contribute to that place. And I think that that would be amazing. Sure. You know, it would it'd be a place for us to just sit down and do it. Like, oh. And anybody who happens to come by, guess what? We have a guest. You know, like when we went to coffee yesterday, Ryan just showed up. If we had the studio and that happened there, he'd be on an episode. Sure. That's pretty cool, actually. That's a great idea. <laughs> just invite random people to come along. Mm-hmm. That's one of my dreams. So... When you contribute to Patreons, you may be contributing to that. I say may because I'm all on board with that, but I can't say it. <laughs> I can't speak for other two people. It's not my job. <laughs> yeah, I would love uh, to. That'd be amazing. That would be so cool. And it would be random decorations everywhere. Oh, we could do video there. We could do all kinds of stuff. It'd be really fun. It's a it's a beautiful future to imagine. Absolutely. Oh, what a great! I mean, I, I remember it, it, through most of my life, in some form or another, I've, I've always had access to a photo studio or a music studio, and you don't realize how much you miss it and how less, how much less you create until you don't have that anymore. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about before, like environment, setting up your environment um, so that it's easier to do things. That's exactly that. Wow! I set Whoa, up that environment. One. Brutal. That was the dog. Um, right. Yeah, it was. That's just. That's been. I've been with all this space in my head. Sometimes you know you just focus on one thought that keeps coming back because you're not being inundated with you know Twitter and TV and all of these other things coming at you. So you you kind of just dwell on thoughts, and that image of that studio is something I've been dwelling on. Mm. It's very inspiring for me. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Whoa, we still have a lot of time left. Hey, don't you growl. You're on camera. I mean, you're on the speaker now. Speaker, microphone, I can't even talk anymore. What the hell's the matter with me? (laughs) 
Wait, how do you figure we have a lot of time left? Uh, well, I started this recording about an hour and 51 minutes ago, and you came in about seven minutes after that. Oh, gotcha. Ding, ding. I'm, yeah, I'm looking at the wrong clock. You need more than one clock? What's the matter with you? Oh, you know what I was going to tell you about? Forgot. Um, before I do that, do you have anything you want to talk about before I go on another little tangent? Um, not that's going to be short. Okay. Um, um, I, I was at some point going to talk to you about the the new DC and Marvel shows, um, and 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 how those are going to fit into a new framework for what we understand as entertainment. But I feel like that's an like a half hour conversation. <laughs> yeah, and that's something I actually should probably know more about. I don't really know a ton. I just know there might be a Hawkeye show. Yeah, so that's the the, the teaser. The teaser for the next episode is going to be um, how the how Marvel Studios and Disney specifically is going to teach us how to build a new universe within the combining of all of these different forms of media. Tune in next Monday for more on this exciting topic. Was that radio show? No. Sure. <laughs> Lamb's Lamb says sure when he means no. <laughs> nope, absolutely not. I'm trying to be nice, Chad. Sure. I realize I just shouldn't be nice to you. Nope. Sure. Nothing. Nope. That's not that. um so uh, remember I told you before I had what? At least at least you know my sure's now. That's like the most dismissive sure I could ever give you. <laughs> That's like the most dismissive sure I could ever give you. I could go through and uh, count sure, all the whatever. sures I've got over the years. <laughs> there are a lot of sures in the recordings. <laughs> Sure. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Okay. Sure. Well, no, there are different versions, Jeff. Yeah, that's true. They don't, all, they don't always mean sure, whatever. Sure. Sometimes yeah. it's sure. I don't have anything to contribute. Yeah. Do we have a delay right now? Um. Yep. Possibly. Well, because our our Wi-Fi's are respectively. I, I feel like at certain times of day, like around now after dinner, my Wi-Fi slows down slightly because everyone in the world is on Wi-Fi at once. Yeah, everybody's on Netflix. Yep. Um, okay, so since we're getting crappy signal, I'll go through one more thing, and then we will bail out of here. Um, oh, two things, but one's really short. But uh, remember, I was talking about how all these books, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do with them. I'm going to donate them or whatever. Because I've been getting either audiobooks or ebook versions, I finally found a place or what to do with the books. Do you know what free little libraries are? Yes, I do. Well, there happen to be on my walks. I've seen like six of them. And for anybody who doesn't know, they're these little wooden boxes that people build in front of their houses that almost look like birdhouses that they put books in and they allow people to either take a book or donate a book. So every time I go for a walk, I put two books in my bag. And when I walk by a little library, I contribute. That is a great idea. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice little adventure. Um, it's a good way to get them out there and at least have a chance that the person that takes it is going to read it. So that's what I'm doing with my books. And then the one last little thing. Cool. How many books do you? How many book? How many books are you going to be contributing to the world that way? Um, probably close to six or seven hundred. Oh my god! <laughs> I, over over a period of time, obviously, I'm not. One of my other rules is if well, the sure. books I've contributed are still in the box. I can't put one in. 
Wow. That's, that's an impressive number of books. So that's basically 300 days worth of books that you have to contribute. Yep. Theoretically, we'll see how it works out. Ah, okay. Um, one last thing. Um, I promised every episode to give an update on Patreon, everything that I've added to Patreon. I don't, I, it's, I have written down 42 posts are up there, but there's more than 42 posts now. But all of technical ramblings, technical ramblings, enunciation, part one or 1.0, where Lamb and I talked about iOS apps, all 10 of those episodes are up on my Patreon, which is uh, patreon.com forward slash Holy Fool Productions. There's one journal, there are, there's one drawing, and there are all seven episodes of my Pants in the Chair novel writing podcast. So that's all the stuff I put up this week. Jeez. Well, that explains why my RSS feed for the show or for the Patreon basically got blown up. Mm-hmm. I promised I was going to put stuff up. I'm doing it. I'm, I'm keeping my end of the bargain. So if you guys would like to be on the other end of the bargain, please contribute. I would love it. Um, okay. We have a huge delay between Lamb and I right now, which is very hard to record because he's about 10 seconds behind me. Um, so we're going to say adios. So, uh, bye, bye babies. Bye. Eight seconds. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, that's crazy. That's so much of a delay. Yeah. <laughs>